Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 13. We return to where we left off, picking up this morning at verse 42, really just reading verses 42 and 43 to remind us of the context where we had left off last week. Uh, There in uh, Psalm 23, we just sang about a table being prepared in the midst of enemies, and yet the psalmist being able to say, and yet my cup overflows. It's quite the contrast to be amidst enemies, to be surrounded, and yet to be able to say, I am filled with joy. My cup overflows. Well, we see that idea here reflected in the text. Last week, we left off at a very, very encouraging point. Paul preaches in a synagogue, and everyone begs that he will return and declare these things to them again next week. Our text then picks up, raising our expectations even higher. It tells us that almost the entire city comes out. Why? To hear the word of the Lord. So what would you expect to happen? What would follow on the heels of such a glorious set of circumstances? We're going to see that things don't pan out quite the way we might expect. And yet pay attention to the final verse as well because the text still somehow ends in the disciples being full of joy and of the Holy Spirit. Give our careful attention to the word of God. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. There is an old saying that says expectations are nothing more than premeditated resentments. Expectations are nothing more than premeditated resentments. 
to be clear, I think what the saying is getting at is that unmet expectations are premeditated resentments. One of the most dangerous or damaging things we can do to ourselves or to those around us is to place too much stock in our own idea of how things ought to unfold. When was the last time things didn't turn out quite like you had expected? We have all had this happen to us in many, many ways. It could be something as simple as a family outing interrupted. Or at other times, it is as monumental as a life-changing diagnosis. As you begin to reflect on that saying, whether true or not, in light of your own experience, I want you to particularly think of it, think of your own experience as a Christian, as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Have things unfolded in the way that you have expected. Has your marriage developed in the way that you anticipated? Has raising your children gone the way that you thought that it would? Have your relationships in the church unfolded like you thought they might? Uh, You've served and you've sacrificed much time and energy in the church, so did things go as you expected? In one way or another, we all know what it is like when things did not go quite like we had expected. So did these unmet expectations result in resentment? Are you still wrestling with the tension between early expectations and what actually unfolded? You see, if we are not careful about our expectations, those unmet expectations can become the occasion for mounting resentments. So how can we deal with this reality within the Christian life? After all, these things that we desire are good things. It is right and good to desire that our children be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord and follow us in our faith. It is right and good to desire relationships within the church to deepen and develop and flourish. It is right and good to desire a marriage that reflects the gospel to this world. It is right and good to desire abiding unity within the church. It is right and good to desire these things, but if we are not careful about our expectations, these might then unintentionally leave us struggling with resentment. And unresolved resentment will only do damage to your own soul and to those who are closest to you. It will do damage to those in all of those areas in which you had those expectations in the first place. Well, that is why the text before us this morning is truly a gift from God. This passage is a wonderful gift to the church because it teaches us how to make our pilgrimage through a sin-sick world. Why? Well, because this passage is provided to reorient us as disciples of Jesus Christ so that we, by the power and grace of God, can take all of those present or potential resentments and transform them instead into joy and contentment. Do you believe that this is possible? Look at the text. Last week, we left off with these events that created 
a lot of anticipation or expectation within us. Those who heard Paul preach were excited about what they heard so much so that they begged him to return the next week. And then that excitement grew throughout the week as they went out into the city of Antioch and told others so much so that almost the whole entire city comes out to hear the word of the Lord. It is incredible. All of that early expectation exploded. And we're left wondering, what is going to happen next? If we hadn't already read the text, what would you expect? What do you think Paul and Barnabas expected? At that point in the text, it seems as though Paul and Barnabas are about to establish the largest church plant that ever existed. In the matter of a week, the word is preached one week. The next week, the entire city, almost the entire city comes to Christ, and there's widespread revival. That's what we're left expecting. But given the, way, given the way that these events began to unfold, it would be no surprise if Paul and Barnabas and others were filled with the greatest expectations. But then everything takes a dramatic turn. And these events do not unfold as we are led to expect. Instead of Paul preaching and that early momentum developing into a city-sized church plant, sin interrupts. Jewish jealousy interrupts everything. And instead of Paul and Barnabas having to devote themselves now to disciple a multitude of new believers, they are instead persecuted and violently kicked out of the city. So how is that for unmet expectations? What happened to Paul and Barnabas when things did not go as we might have expected? Did those unmet expectations result in resentment? Look at verse 52. Referencing the disciples, Paul and Barnabas at the very least, but others with them, the text tells us that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you what is an obvious question, or a question with an obvious answer. Would you rather be filled with resentment or with joy and with the Holy Spirit? Is it really possible for resentment, circumstances that which would otherwise create resentment, is it possible for these instead to be replaced with joy? The Word of God says so. Absolutely. Here we have the infallible word of God teaching us that there is a pathway in a fallen world to being filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit even when things do not work out the way that we might have expected. So let's learn that pathway this morning. And let's begin where the text begins. Let's begin with the expectations of our eyes. The way in which Luke reports these events creates certain expectations within the readers. Uh, consider both the evidence he, he, he places before us and the logic that we tend to follow. First, the evidence. Paul preached, and the folks in that synagogue were so blessed by that word that they begged that he would return the next week to preach the gospel again. 
And then that enthusiasm was not left only to those in the synagogue, but it spread like wildfire, so much so that almost the whole city comes to hear the word of the Lord. The evidence presented to our eyes is almost entirely, really it is entirely positive. So consider the logic. Given the early enthusiasm of those in the synagogue, given the spread of that enthusiasm throughout the city, and given the text states that the the desire of the crowds is to hear the word of the Lord, it seems perfectly logical to expect an incredible movement of God's word and spirit among the citizens of Antioch. After all, Paul is intending to come and to preach to them the best news ever announced. So considering the early evidence in what seems to be a logical way, the reader is led to develop expectations of what would amount to something great, something amazing. Everything seems to be developing in the direction of a glorious display of God's power and grace. So what is missing from our consideration so far? Do you notice anything that is absent from the evidence that we are weighing? Well, there are at least two, two matters that we must always be careful to factor into the forming of our expectations. The first of these is sin. Sin is absent from our considerations so far. Looking at the evidence, considering things logically, we have failed to account for the fact that we live in a fallen world. And so long as we live in a fallen world, our expectations must take into account that sin is always near. This is why Peter writes in his first epistle saying, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. God's word is clear. So long as we live in this world, until our pilgrimage comes to an end, we need to be on guard because here we are always engaged in a battle. We are engaged in a battle with three enemies, the world, our own flesh, and the devil. And so whenever we formulate expectations about life in the kingdom of Christ in this world, we need to carefully account for the reality of sin. Second, this process of weighing the evidence and forming our expectations in a logical way assumes something. And it assumes that God's ways are like our own. That God thinks in the ways that we tend to think. But God's word is clear. That is never a safe assumption. Isaiah 55, God says, your ways are not my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. God's ways are not our own. His are always higher than ours. So whenever we formulate our own expectations, we need to be careful to remember that God's ways are not our own. We should never assume that God thinks like we do. We tend to look at events in our lives and we think we know the way that they ought to unfold. In his book, The Mystery of Providence, John Flavel wrote, God's providence is wiser than you. And you may be confident that he has suited all things better to your eternal good 
than you could do had you been left to your own options. God's ways are higher, which means they are better. Brothers and sisters, all of this means that we need to examine our own expectations for life in Christ's kingdom. The text itself sets us up as if we are going to have certain expectations, but it does so carefully to teach us another way. And learning this other way begins with this first step of examining our own expectations. Because unmet expectations, unmet earthly expectations often lead to resentment. And one of the most dangerous things we can do to ourselves and to those around us is to place too much stock in the way that we think things ought to unfold. This is demonstrated throughout Scripture. Think about the Jewish expectations for Jesus at the time of his coming. The Jews were expecting Jesus to come as a conquering king. And he came as a suffering servant. Think about Christ's ministry as a whole. While performing miracles and feeding thousands, the crowds gathered around him and they grew and they grew and they grew as earthly expectations for Jesus grew until they reached a fever pitch. But then Jesus died upon a cross and those crowds disappeared and 120 are left instead. We see this powerfully illustrated by Jesus in John chapter 6 when the crowds continue to come after Jesus. He has just fed a large crowd. The next day they follow after him again and he stops them in their tracks and he says, Listen, you are following me because you have your own expectations of me. You are following me because you have had your bellies filled. And the moment that Jesus does not fulfill their expectations of him, they sadly turn and they go their own way. And so all of this teaches us to examine our expectations for life in Christ's kingdom. This is an opportunity for us to think about, to examine the expectations that we have formed for what living in Christ's kingdom ought to be like. Have your expectations for life in this world as citizens of Christ's kingdom, have they accounted for the fact that you live in a fallen world full of sin? Do your expectations align with the fact that God's ways are not your ways, that his ways are higher than your own Have you examined your expectations? Or have you perhaps formed expectations without any real examination? You see, unexamined expectations are what often set us up for deep disappointments or lasting resentments. Our expectations need to come in alignment with the realities of life in Christ's kingdom. And so that's where the text takes us next. So second, let's continue to examine the text, considering the unfolding of God's plan. At verse 44, our expectations are at an all-time high. Almost the whole city comes out to hear the word of the Lord. It's amazing. 
And then verse 45 continues with the word but. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. What happened? It doesn't seem like this jealousy was present a week ago among the Jews. But because we are engaged in a real spiritual battle with the world, our own flesh, and the devil, at just what appears to be the worst possible moment, jealousy interrupts everything. Instead of a clear gospel proclamation, it is now contradicted. Instead of the pure and unhindered hearing of God's word, this enormous crowd is distracted, and that gospel message is now diluted due to sin. And suddenly our expectations are exploded. And instead of a great gospel triumph, we witness this muddled mess as a result of sin. So what are we to make of all of this? And what are we to learn from God's unfolding plan? Well, consider Paul and Barnabas and observe their reaction to all of this. What do they do? And how do they handle this sudden change of events? What happens to them when things did not unfold as they appeared to be unfolding? Instead, God's plan has everything take a turn suddenly. Sin disrupts everything, and in the sovereign plan of God, instead of planting this church almost the size of a whole city, the text ends with something completely different. Paul and Barnabas are expelled from the city violently. So observe Paul and Barnabas. See first that they respond with boldness. Which means, clearly, Paul and Barnabas were not overtaken by this sudden change of events. Paul and Barnabas were not thrown off, of course, when things didn't unfold as they might have expected. Why? Well, it is because they are what it looks like when the servants of Christ are submitted to his will. They are a picture of what it looks like when the servants of Christ are actively submitting themselves to his will as it unfolds. Every week we pray together the Lord's Prayer. And as a quick aside, we never recite the Lord's Prayer. We are always praying the Lord's Prayer when we are praying it together. But in that prayer, Jesus teaches us to say, to pray, thy will be done. And in that prayer, what are we doing? We are actively setting aside my own will. I am taking my desires in the way that I think things ought to unfold, and I am setting them aside and seeking from the Lord that I might be conformed to Christ's will. And that is who Paul and Barnabas are here in our text. Think about it. I am sure that Paul would have rather preached a gospel undeterred. I am sure that he would rather have had the whole city hear and believe. I am sure that he would not wish to be reviled or to find himself suddenly engaged in this fight. But when things unfold, according to God's plan, his actions show that he has been formed by that powerful prayer given to us by Christ. He has set his own desires, his own expectations aside, and he is ready to embrace the will of God. He looks at things unfolding and he says, thy will be done, Lord. This is incredible. 
Paul and Barnabas take all of this in stride because they say, Thy will be done. So how are they able so quickly to say, Thy will be done? Well, I believe the answer is found there in verse 47 in the text. Paul boldly declares these words to the Jews. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul's expectations have been formed by the word of God. Paul is not surprised by the way things unfold because he has been conformed to the will of God through his study of God's word. The reason why Paul can take everything in stride is because his own expectations were ready to account for this sudden change of events. Paul understood that it was God's will for the gospel to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He didn't exactly know how, but when it happened, he was ready to follow the Lord's lead. And here's what I really want you to notice. All of this really highlights how Paul has set aside his own personal desires. He has set aside actively one of his greatest desires as he follows Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Well, in Romans 9, Paul tells us that one of his own greatest desires was that his fellow countrymen, the Jews, would come to know Christ. That was a burning desire within the Apostle Paul's heart. And here he sees things from a human perspective and it looks like it is everything is going awry. The Jews are filled with jealousy. And they do not want this gospel proclaimed. And yet, what do we see in the Apostle Paul? His own personal desires are subjected to the will of Jesus Christ. So much so that he is eagerly preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He is eager to follow Christ, knowing that his will, his way is better. And so he sets his own desires aside, and he follows the will of Christ, enthusiastically preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. This is Paul embodying what he will later write to the Corinthians 2 Corinthians 5, Christ died that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for Christ who for our sake died and rose. That is what we see here in our text. Paul, because of the word of God and the spirit of God, he is now living for the sake of Christ, actively submitting his own will to King Jesus. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. All of us know the truthfulness of this statement. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. All of us think we know the way that it ought to go. But there is one perfect plan, and it belongs to the Lord. So as we examine the expectations of life in Christ's kingdom, we need to learn to embrace the unfolding plan of King Jesus. Again, remember Flavel's words, God's providence is wiser than you. 
And you may be confident that he has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own options. The only way you can live this way is by faith. It is by shutting your eyes to what your circumstances seem to be saying to you and instead believing that God's way is best. He is sovereign and things are unfolding according to plan. That doesn't mean that sin isn't involved in this world. It actually means it is. But he has promised to work together all things for good. What we see Paul and Barnabas doing here in our text is embracing the way of the cross. The Christian life is marked or shaped like the cross. What do I mean? Well, think about the cross of Jesus Christ. From a human perspective, the events that unfolded at Calvary looked to be the worst possible outcome. It seems as if sin is about to triumph. It seems as if the enemy is going to crucify God's Son, and that's the end of it all. But in the wisdom of God, the unfolding of God's sovereign plan leads to the greatest act of good ever. And then that's what we see here reflected in the text. It looks as if everything is going wrong in a moment. Sin is about to have its way. The gospel is interrupted. What is going on here? Well, as we continue on in the text, we see that God has ordained all of this, that the gospel might go forth to the ends of the earth. And so rather than looking at these circumstances and wringing their hands at things that seem to have gone awry, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are ready to say, I wonder what God is doing here. How is this better than our earlier expectations? Well, as we go on in the text, we see that God is using all of this for the gospel to go forth. All those appointed to eternal life believe They rejoice in the goodness of God and then the gospel goes forward as we're going to see in weeks to come. So brothers and sisters, let us learn to align our expectations for life in Christ's kingdom and let us embrace the way and the wisdom of the cross. So what does this look like? How how can we know whether or not our lives are aligned with Kingdom expectations. Well, let's consider finally living according to kingdom expectations. All of this might lead us right now to the wrong conclusion. It may sound at this point like we just need to lower our expectations. An English poet, Alexander Pope, wrote, Blessed is the man who expects nothing... For he shall never be disappointed. Is that what this text is saying? Is that what God's word is leading us to here? Just lower your expectations. Or have no expectations. Is that really what God is calling us to? 
Well, as we examine the end of our text, we see that the exact opposite is actually what God's word is leading us to here. We are not, we do not have too low of expectations. If anything, they are not high enough. And this is illustrated really well in Luke 24. There are two disciples leaving Jerusalem, walking to Emmaus after Christ's crucifixion. And they are dejected. They're walking along the road talking about these things, and Jesus comes to them, hiding himself from their perception. They just think they're talking to any ordinary man. He asks them what's going on. And they're like, are you kidding? Are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on or what just unfolded in Jerusalem? And so he asks them about it, and and they say to him, we had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. They're saying things did not unfold as we expected. Our expectations for the Messiah are now unmet. Were their expectations for the Messiah too high? No, they were too low. And so Jesus goes on, still hidden from their eyes, to reform their expectations with his word. He begins with a question that makes them examine their own expectations. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then he goes to the word, beginning with Moses and then working through the prophets. He explains to them how Christ came, how he had come exactly in the way that he ought. Perfectly according to God's plan. As the text goes on, Jesus suddenly reveals himself to them as the Messiah. However they were hidden from from their eyes, they now see him for who he is and he disappears instantaneously. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? What did Jesus do when he opened to them the scriptures? Well, he said, your expectations, yes, your earthly unmet expectations were unmet. But you see, everything that I have done has just exceeded your wildest expectations. And this is the paradigm shift that should mark us as we adopt kingdom expectations. It is not as though our expectations are too large. It is often that they are too small. Our expectations are often limited to earthly desires, to temporal circumstances, to things presently as we see them. But King Jesus is the one who sees it all, who always keeps in mind the big picture, and who is ruling and reigning over all things, orchestrating them together for our good. Kingdom expectations are always bigger and always better. And we actually need to keep our expectations on guard, that our own expectations do not pollute kingdom expectations. So again, what does it look like when we embrace the way of the cross? How do we know if our own expectations and desires have come to be submitted to Christ? 
Well, the end of our text shows us, first of all, we trust in the goodness of God's plan. What happened when everything appears to go awry? Well, in the providence of God, what others intended for evil, God gloriously uses for great good. Verse 48, the Gentiles rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That means nothing, nothing happened outside of God's determined plan. All of those appointed to eternal life believed. Not a single one was lost because Jesus Christ is saving his own. And then verse 49, all of these events also work out so that the word of the Lord spreads throughout the whole region. And so when the enemy comes seeking to stamp out the progress of the word of God, his efforts only serve to fan it into flame. It only is used by God to spread it right where he wants it to be. Second, living in Christ's kingdom, we need to be prepared for opposition to continue. Verse 50 tells us that the Jews continue to oppose the work of the gospel. And so, Paul and Barnabas were persecuted and violently expelled from the city. If we go on here in chapter 14, beginning at verse 19, it even says there, But Jews came from Antioch here. They later come to find Paul and Barnabas, and they continue to seek to oppose them. Well, Paul and Barnabas are prepared because Christ taught them to have this as a part of their own expectations. This is a kingdom expectation. Third, living with these kingdom expectations means living according to God's revealed will. Look at verse 51. Paul and Barnabas shake the dust from their feet as a sign against Antioch. That had cultural significance in its day. But you could easily see some arguing, saying, why are you doing this? Isn't it? Overboard. Maybe you should just leave. Why would you be perhaps provoking your enemies? Well, Paul and Barnabas are not thinking what ought we to do in terms of their own desires. They are simply doing what Christ commanded. Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 10 to do this very thing when the gospel was rejected. And so we see the word of God is their rule for faith and life. They are not submitting themselves to human wisdom. They're not doing this because it makes sense to their own minds. They're doing it because Christ commanded. But then finally, the final mark of living with kingdom expectations is being filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit. Our text began by building expectations for, on a human level, what would be glorious. But then sin seemed to disrupt God's work in Antioch. But in the end, it turns out that the Lord Jesus has used this to fulfill his eternal plan. And so what are Paul and Barnabas doing? They are sitting back and submitting themselves to the will and wisdom of Jesus. And that is why the passage can say, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It would be so easy for them to look and say, Ah, 
it didn't work out the way that we had expected. We thought an entire city was going to come to Christ, and that's a good thing. Yet they do not evaluate their circumstances and the way things actually unfolded from their own earthly minds. Instead, they, by faith, look to Jesus Christ, who is king, who is ordering all of these things. And they don't say, this is a bummer. They say, this must be better. This must be better. And it is because they trust in Christ Because they are not relying on their own wisdom or their own way of thinking that they can be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, our expectations are formed by the world around us. In fact, that's what Romans 12 says. If we're not careful, we will simply be conformed to the ways of this world. We need to be transformed by the Word of God. And oftentimes, the church adopts the expectations of the world. And so we can unintentionally assume that the kingdom will advance in ways that this world would recognize as successful. But is that really informed by the word of God? Is that really Christ's will for kingdom advancement? Well, one of the illustrations, the parables that Jesus gives us to understand how the kingdom will advance is the parable of leaven. Leaven mixed into a lump of dough. And Jesus says you can take this tiny amount of leaven and mix it into a a greater amount of dough, and it will work its way through completely. But how does it spread? Well, it spreads quietly. It, It spreads slowly, it may seem, over time. And it also spreads imperceptibly. But in the end, it does spread completely. You don't have to see how it advances. It simply advances. And so right now, even now, in the state that the church finds itself in and the state of this world, we might be tempted to look and say it is all going awry. But we can instead, by faith, look to Christ and say it is unfolding according to plan. In the midst of circumstances that seem to be discouraging, we can look to Christ who has promised to build his church and we say it is marching forward. I don't even need to see it with my eyes because he who promised is faithful. I began with two questions this morning. Would you rather be filled with resentment or with joy and the Holy Spirit? Well, again, the answer to that is obvious. Who wouldn't? The second question, is it really possible for resentment to be replaced with joy? Well, I hope the answer to that one is now clear. Of course we want to be filled with joy. How do we do so? We do so by closing our eyes to the ways of this world, to our own earthly expectations, and instead, by faith, we look to the Word of God. 
We trust in the promise of Christ. We form expectations that are informed by the word of God and that align with Christ as we then seek his kingdom together. This will guard us from discouragement and resentment and will allow us instead to say that all things are unfolding according to Christ's plan and in that I can rejoice. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the renewing of our minds that comes by way of your word. Lord, we confess that often we still think in the ways that are informed by this world. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform our expectations and cause us to embrace the way of the cross, and then to live with joy, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, in the eyes of the world, this would be a madness. This would be crazy. And yet we pray that you would glorify your name in this world to cause us to live in light of these unseen realities in opposition to the ways of this world. Lord, please glorify yourself in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.